In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me say again what a pleasure it is to be back at All Saints, and uh, what an honor it is for me to be here and to bring the message of Holy Week, uh, sort of the gospel according to King Emig, uh, the way it is in the last week. Uh, But before I get started, I'd like to uh, first of all thank uh, Jeffrey and Sage for a fantastic dinner last night with their two girls who were lovely and uh, they kept us in line uh, so we had a an early evening uh, which I very much appreciated. Uh, I mentioned yesterday about a fellow that lived above our apartment uh, in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, uh, who was, quote-unquote, our guardian angel. Uh, his name was Horace, or is Horace. That's his nickname. What I, And he was the one who gave me the idea about this being a revival in the Episcopal Church, albeit minus the sawdust and the tent and all that, um, But what I forgot to say or left out um, was something extremely interesting. Uh, In fact, it's one of the wildest stories I've ever heard uh, about what happened to Horace. Uh, In early August of 1985, he uh, went on a business trip to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He was in the uh, fashion world and in the fashion business, and he was going down for a convention. Once he got there, he he yielded to temptation and turned around and bought a plane ticket uh, for Las Vegas. And the flight... Flight 191, the Delta L-1011 that he took out of Fort Lauderdale was eventually destined to get to Los Angeles, but they had a stop in Dallas. Horace got on the plane, went to his seat, and there was a man already sitting in his seat, like a Texan long-legged, and he was sitting in the seat with the most leg room, and so Horace said, don't move, I'll go back, it's not a full flight. And so he moved back a few rows, whereupon when the movie came on, he couldn't see it very well, so he moved back again a few rows where he could watch what was on the screen And then a baby started crying right next to him, so he moved back again in the L-1011. Finally, on the last leg of the trip to Dallas, he, he moves to the rear of the plane one last time so he can smoke and read the odds on blackjack and get ready for Las Vegas. 
I don't know if you all remember, but on August the 2nd, 1985, Flight 191 coming into Dallas was hit by a wind shear approaching the runway. Uh, it hit a car on the interstate a mile from the runway, but somehow kept in the air. John Boy, or Horace, as he told me, he remembers that the pilots trying to pull out of it pulled back on the throttle and gunned it to its top speed trying to retake off again. So they were hurdling at the highest maximum speed until they clipped the first of two water towers. Uh, at the time, it was one of the most horrible air disasters in American history. What's so remarkable is that Horace woke up hanging out of the tail section. Everything in front of him was gone. And he undid a seat belt, fell to the ground, and had 40 stitches. Now, he did have to suffer, I must tell you, because that day his wife got a call and said, this is Delta Airlines, and we are pleased to report that your husband, Mr. John K. Moore, uh, survived the plane crash today in Dallas, one of the few. And she said, well, that, that couldn't be. You must have the wrong John Moore because my husband is in Fort Lauderdale on a business trip. <laughs> and they said, Ms. John K. Moore on West Brow Road, Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. She says, yes, no, your husband was on the flight. So Horace, needless to say, became single, and he moved to the apartment up above us, and... Uh, He's now a greeter at Walmart. <laughs> He's out of the fashion business. Anyway, I wanted to say that because he was the one who said that when I was going to Philadelphia to preach for Holy Week that I wasn't going to be preaching. I was going to be doing a revival. And in fact, in his saying that, uh, the truth be known, it is our revival in the Episcopal Church. And it's one that we have every year for two weeks, this week and then Easter week. So I want you guys to get with it and get revived. This is the time that the backsliders come back and the slothful and the lazy are aroused to faith. In talking about Dead Man Walking, which is the title of these talks for Holy Week. I want to refer to the writings of New Testament scholar John Dominic Crossan, who is uh, an Irish-American, former Roman Catholic priest, uh, 
and one of the Jesus scholars. And he and the late Marcus Borg were two of the leading scholars, New Testament scholars, followed in the Episcopal Church. Uh, many people do not like him. Some people call him the devil. One person said about crossing that uh, if there if there is no hell, one ought to be created just to have some place to put him. Crossan says that there are five responses to the person of Jesus in his ministry. And I want to go over these five and offer to you that all these responses were played out in Holy Week only more so than it had been the rest of his ministry. The first response, Crossan says, is that Jesus is out of touch. Ignore him. You know, all this stuff about the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, uh, about not worrying about what you're to eat or drink or what you're to wear, that your heavenly Father doesn't he love you more than the sparrows that fall to the earth, that he was a dreamer, he was delusional, he was out of touch with reality. The second point Crossan makes is that Jesus is lost. Leave him. One thinks of the episode with his family in the third chapter of Mark, in which his family's trying to get to him, and they say that he is beside himself, which in truth means he needs to be institutionalized. He's out of his mind. Uh, another case in point, probably the, the most dramatic one, is when Jesus in the sixth chapter of John, talking about the bread of life, says, my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Believe me, Jews were not too big on cannibalism. And it says in the scripture there that many of his followers chose to leave him then. And Jesus did have followers who left him, could take it no longer. The third point was that Jesus is dangerous. Fight him. We see this played out in several scenes in the Gospels, notably the one with Herod and the Magi when they come to the Holy Land seeking the king of the Jews. And Herod, in a beguiling way, says, well, tell me where he is so that I too may come and worship him which led to the killing of the holy innocents so that this king of the Jews would be done away with. It's what spurred 
the flight into Egypt, according to Matthew. It says, particularly in Luke's gospel, that when Jesus came to his hometown and went into the synagogue and he picked it up and turned to the 61st chapter of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and liberation to the captives. And then it says he closed the book and says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I don't know if you remember what happens next, but the people of Nazareth become so incensed that he would have the temerity to say that and believe it, that they tried to get him, capture him, and take him and throw him off of a cliff. But Jesus somehow got through their midst and was not killed. In Matthew 12, there are two incidents of where Jesus violates the Sabbath. One, when he and his disciples eat grain in the fields, which was in violation of the Sabbath. And then there is the one in which he heals the man in the synagogue with a withered arm, something Jesus easily could have postponed until the next day. And then he would go on to say that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This would be considered dangerous to Hebrew religion. According to John's gospel, it wasn't the cleansing of the temple that necessitated the arrest of Jesus, as it was said in the synoptics. John's gospel, John had access to a different tradition, but in John's gospel, what is the final act that provokes the authorities to have him arrested is the raising of Lazarus thinking any man who can raise a four-day-old corpse from the dead is dangerous. No telling what he could do about raising a revolution. The fourth one is, he's criminal. Let's kill him. And, of course, that's what happens. Uh, In the throwing of the money changers out of the temple, in the saying that, tear down this temple in three days, I will rebuild it, calling it a den of thieves, when, in fact, that was where most of the commerce took place in Jerusalem, and it was something that was smiled on by the Chamber of Commerce because they were currency traders, taking pagan currency, trading it into Hebrew currency so they could use it to buy the Passover lambs and do what they needed to do as a service. He is a criminal. And fourthly, fifthly, Crossan says, 
He's divine. Let's worship him. We see this throughout the Gospels, especially in the cases of dramatic healings. The rabbis considered to heal leprosy was about as likely as someone raising the dead. So when Jesus touches, reaches out and touches a leper and makes him whole and well, everybody is filled with awe and are thinking and feeling only God could act like this. Let's worship him. It started with the shepherds and the magi and the birth stories. It happened with the stilling of the storm when Jesus was asleep in the stern and they woke him up saying, do you not care if we perish? And he says, be muzzled, the same command that he had given the demoniac in the synagogue before. And they said, whoa, this guy is more than a human being. But maybe the apex of the declaration of the, of the divinity of Jesus, ironically, comes from the lips of a pagan, a centurion, that Mark says is standing at the foot of the cross. All the disciples had fled. They were nowhere to be found. There were some women from Galilee looking on at a distance. But this one centurion, Mark contends, comes out with the, the statement that is foundational to the Christian faith, although he himself was not, quote, unquote, a person of faith. When he sees Jesus and he cries out and he gives up his ghost, Mark says, the centurion looked at it and said, truly, this man is the Son of God. And during our revival, this is the time that we, the believing community, who believe that Jesus is both human and divine, come together in this community to become stronger in our faith and to be able to witness to our faith and spread the good news of our faith. But we need each other. There's a wonderful story told by Clarissa Estes in her book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, great title. And it's about a, a tradition of African kings. It's called One Stick, Two Stick. And in this tradition, the aging, ill king on his deathbed calls the family in for a farewell. And he has a bag of sticks next to his bed, and he hands each one of his family members and friends a stick, a sturdy stick. And he hands it to them, and he tells them, break it. With some trouble, 
but they all managed to break the stick in half. He says, that's the one stick that represents the soul when it's alone and without community. And now he said, I want you to pick up two or three sticks and put them in your hand. And then he said, break it. And they couldn't do it. It was too strong. And the point of the African king was that together in community with our shared faith and shared love and commitment to one another in Christ, we have the strength to live the life that God has called us to do that will reach the apex of its revelation on Sunday. Just remember, it's Friday, but Sunday is a coming. Amen.